Chapter Twenty Six, Part One of Belinda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anka. Belinda by Maria Edgeworth. Chapter Twenty Six, Part One. Virginia. Clarence Hervey's packet contained a history of his connection with Virginia St. Pierre. To save our hero from the charge of egotism, we shall relate the principal circumstances in the third person. It was about a year before he had seen Belinda that Clarence Hervey returned from his travels. He had been in France just before the Revolution, when luxury and dissipation were at their height in Paris, and when a universal spirit of licentious gallantry prevailed. Some circumstances in which he was personally interested disgusted him strongly with the Parisian belles. He felt that women who were full of vanity, affectation, and artifice, whose tastes were perverted, and whose feelings were depraved, were equally incapable of conferring or enjoying real happiness. Whilst this conviction was full in his mind, he read the works of Rousseau. This eloquent writer's sense made its full impression upon Clarence's understanding, and his declamations produced more than their just effect upon an imagination naturally ardent. He was charmed with the picture of Sophia, when contrasted with the characters of the women of the world with whom he had been disgusted, and he formed the romantic project of educating a wife for himself. Full of this idea, he returned to England, determined to carry his scheme immediately into execution, but was some time delayed by the difficulty of finding a proper object for his purpose. It was easy to meet with beauty in distress, and ignorance in poverty, but it was difficult to find simplicity without vulgarity, ingenuity without cunning, or even ignorance without prejudice. It was difficult to meet with an understanding totally uncultivated, yet likely to reward the labour of late instruction, a heart wholly unpractised, yet full of sensibility, capable of all the enthusiasm of passion, the delicacy of sentiment, and the firmness of rational constancy. It is not wonderful that Mr. Hervey, with such high expectations, should not immediately find them gratified. Disappointed in his first search, he did not, however, relinquish his design, and at length, by accident, he discovered, or thought that he discovered, an object formed expressly for his purpose. One fine evening in autumn, as he was riding through the new forest, charmed with the picturesque beauties of the place, he turned out of the beaten road and struck into a fresh track, which he pursued with increasing delight, till the setting sun reminded him that it was necessary to postpone his farther reflections on forest scenery, and that it was time to think of finding his way out of the wood. He was now in the most retired part of the forest, and he saw no path to direct him. But as he stopped to consider which way he should turn, a dog sprang from a thicket, barking furiously at his horse. His horse was high-spirited, but he was master of him, and he obliged the animal to stand quietly till the dog, having barked himself hoarse, retreated of his own accord. Clarence watched to see which way he would go, and followed him, in hopes of meeting with the person to whom he belonged. He kept his guide in sight till he came into a beautiful glade, in the midst of which was a neat but very small cottage, with numerous beehives in the garden, surrounded by a profusion of rose-trees which were in full bloom. This cultivated spot was strikingly contrasted with the wildness of the surrounding scenery. As he came nearer, Mr. Hervey saw a young girl watering the rose-trees, which grew round the cottage, and an old woman beside her filling a basket with the flowers. The old woman was like most other old women. 
except that she had a remarkably benevolent countenance, and an air that had been acquired in better days, but the young girl did not appear to Clarence like any other young girl that he had ever seen. The setting sun shone upon her countenance, the wind blew aside the ringlets of her light hair, and the blush of modesty overspread her cheeks when she looked up at the stranger. In the large blue eyes there was an expression of artless sensibility with which Mr. Hervey was so powerfully struck that he remained for some moments silent, totally forgetting that he came to ask his way out of the forest. His horse made so little noise upon the soft grass that he was within a few yards of them before he was perceived by the old woman. As soon as she saw him, she turned abruptly to the young girl, put the basket of roses into her hand, and bid her carry them into the house. As she passed him, the girl, with a sweet innocent smile, held up the basket to Clarence, and offered him one of the roses. "'Go in, Rachel, go in, child,' said the old woman, in so loud and severe a tone, that both Rachel and Mr. Hervey started. The basket was overturned, and the roses all scattered upon the grass." Clarence, though he attempted some apology, was by no means concerned for the accident, as it detained Rachel some instants longer to collect her flowers, and gave him an opportunity of admiring her finely shaped hands and arms, and the ease and natural grace of her motions. "'Go in, Rachel,' repeated the old woman, in a still more severe tone. "'Leave the roses there. I can pick them up as well as you, child. Go in.' The girl looked at the old woman with astonishment, her eyes filled with tears and throwing down the roses that she held in her hand, she said, "'I am going, Grandmother.' The door closed after her before Clarence recollected himself sufficiently to tell the old lady how he had lost his way, etc. Her severity vanished as soon as her granddaughter was safe in the house, and with much readiness she showed him the road for which he inquired. As soon, however, as it was in his power, he returned thither, for he had taken such good note of the place that he easily found his way to the spot, which appeared to him a terrestrial paradise. As he descended into the valley, he heard the humming of bees, but he saw no smoke rising from the cottage chimney. No dog bark, no living creature was to be seen. The house door was shut, the window shutters closed. All was still. The place looked as if it had been deserted by all its inhabitants. The roses had not been watered, many of them had shed their leaves, and a basket half full of dead flowers was left in the middle of the garden. Clarence alighted and tried the latch of the door, but it was fastened. He listened, but heard no sound. He walked round to the back of the house. A small lattice window was half open, and as he went toward it, he thought he heard a low moaning voice. He gently pulled aside the curtain and peeped in at the window. The room was darkened. His eyes had been dazzled by the sun, so that he could not at first see any object distinctly. But he heard the moaning repeated at intervals, and a soft voice at last said, Oh, speak to me, speak to me once again, only once, only once again, speak to me. The voice came from a corner of the room, to which he had not yet turned his eyes, and as he drew aside more of the curtain to let in more light, a figure started up from the side of a bed, at which he had been kneeling, and he saw the beautiful young girl, with her hair all dishevelled, and the strongest expression of grief in her countenance. He asked if he could do her any service. She beckoned to him to come in, and then, pointing to the bed, on which the old woman was stretched, said, "'She cannot speak to me. She cannot move one side. She has been so these three days, but she is not dead. She is not dead.' The poor creature had been struck with the palsy. 
As Clarence went close to the bed, she opened her eyes, and fixing them upon him, she stretched out her withered hand, caught fast hold of her granddaughter, and then, raising herself with a violent effort, she pronounced the word, "'Begone!' Her face grew black, her features convulsed, and she sunk down again in her bed, without power of utterance. Clarence left the house instantly, mounted his horse, and galloped to the next town for medical assistance. The poor woman was so far recovered by a skilful apothecary that she could, in a few days, articulate so as to be understood. She knew that her end was approaching fast, and seemed piously resigned to her fate. Mr. Hervey went constantly to see her, but though grateful to him for his humanity and for the assistance he had procured for her, yet she appeared agitated when he was in the room, and frequently looked at him and at her granddaughter with uncommon anxiety. At last she whispered something to the girl, who immediately left the room, and she then beckoned to him to come closer to the armchair in which she was seated. "'Maybe, sir,' said she, "'you thought me out of my right mind, the day when I was lying on that bed, and said to you in such a peremptory tone, "Be gone." It was all I could say then, and in truth I cannot speak quite plain yet, nor ever shall again, but God's will be done. I had only one thing to say to you, sir, about that poor girl of mine.' Clarence listened to her with eagerness. She paused, and then, laying her cold hand upon his, she looked up earnestly in his face, and continued, "'You are a fine young gentleman, and you look like a good gentleman. But so did the man who broke the heart of her poor mother. Her mother was carried off from a boarding-school, when she was scarcely sixteen, by a wretch who, after privately marrying her, would not own his marriage, stayed with her but two years, then went abroad.' left his wife and his infant, and has never been heard of since. My daughter died of a broken heart. Rachel was then between three and four years old, a beautiful child. God forgive her father. God's will be done. She paused to subdue her emotion, and then, with some difficulty, proceeded. My only comfort is, I have bred Rachel up in innocence. I never sent her to a boarding-school. No, no. From the moment of her birth till now I have kept her under my own eye. In this cottage she has lived with me, away from all the world. You are the first man she ever spoke to, the first man who ever was within these doors. She is innocence itself. Oh, sir, as you hope for mercy when you are as I am now, spare the innocence of that poor child. Never, never come here after her, when I am dead and gone. Consider, she is but a child, sir. God never made a better creature." Oh, promise me you will not be the ruin of my sweet, innocent girl, and I shall die in peace. Clarence Hervey was touched. He instantly made the promise required of him, and, as nothing less would satisfy the poor dying woman, confirmed it by a solemn oath. Now I am easy, said she, quite easy, and may God bless you for it. In the village here there is a Mrs. Smith, a good farmer's wife who knows us well. She will see to have me decently buried and then has promised to sell all the little I have for my girl, and to take care of her. And you'll never come near her more? I did not promise that, said Hervey. The old woman again looked much disturbed. Ah, good young gentleman, said she, take my advice, it will be best for you both. If you see her again, you will love her, sir, you can't help it. And if she sees you, poor thing, how innocently she smiled when she gave you the rose. Oh, sir, never come near her when I am gone. It is too late for me now to get her out of your way. This night, I am sure, will be my last in this world, or promise me you will never come here again. 
after the oath i have taken replied clarence that promise would be unnecessary trust to my honour honour oh that was the word the gentleman said that betrayed her poor mother and left her afterwards to die oh sir sir the violent emotion that she felt was too much for her she fell back exhausted never spoke more and an hour afterwards she expired in the arms of her granddaughter the poor girl could not believe that she had breathed her last she made a sign to the surgeon and to clarence hervey who stood beside her to be silent and listened fancying that the corpse would breathe again then she kissed her cold lips and the shrivelled cheeks and the eyelids that were closed for ever she warmed the dead fingers with her breath she raised the heavy arm and when it fell she perceived there was no hope she threw herself upon her knees she is dead she exclaimed and she has died without giving me her blessing she can never bless me again they took her into the air and clarence hervey sprinkled water upon her face it was a fine night and the fresh air soon brought her to her senses he then said that he would leave her to the care of the surgeon and ride to the village in search of that mrs smith who had promised to be her friend and so you are going away from me too said she and she burst into tears at the sight of these tears clarence turned away and hurried from her he sent the woman from the village but returned no more that night her simplicity sensibility and perhaps more than he was aware her beauty had pleased and touched him extremely the idea of attaching a perfectly pure disinterested unpractised heart was delightful to his imagination the cultivation of her understanding he thought would be an easy and a pleasing task all difficulties vanished before his sanguine hopes sensibility said he to himself is the parent of great talents and great virtues and evidently she possesses natural feeling in an uncommon degree it shall be developed with skill patience and delicacy and i will deserve before i claim my reward the next day he returned to the cottage accompanied by an elderly lady a mrs ormond the same lady who afterward to marriott's prejudiced eyes had appeared more like a dragon than anything else but who to this simple unsuspicious girl seemed like what she really was a truly good-natured benevolent woman she consented most readily to put herself under the protection of mrs ormond provided mrs smith would give her leave there was no difficulty in persuading mrs smith that it was for her advantage mrs smith who was a plain farmer's wife told all that she knew of rachel's history but all that she knew was little she had heard only hints at odd times from the old woman these agreed perfectly with what mr hervey had already heard the old gentlewoman said mrs smith as i believe i should call her by rights has lived in the forest there where you found her these many a year she earned her subsistence by tending bees and making rose-water she was a good soul but very particular especially about her granddaughter which considering all things one cannot blame her for she often told me she would never put rachel to a boarding-school which i approved seeing she had no fortune and it is the ruin of girls to my mind to be bred above their means as it was of her mother sir then she would never teach rachel to write for fear she should take to scrolling nonsense of love-letters as her mother did before her now sir this i approve too for i don't much mind about book-learning myself and i even thought it would have been as well if the girl had not learned to read but that she did learn and was always fond of and i'm sure it was more plague than use too to her grandmother for she was as particular about the books that the girl was to read as about all the rest 
she went farther than all that sir for she never would let the girl speak to a man not a man ever entered the doors of the house so she told me and she told you true enough but there i thought she was quite wrong for seeing the girl must some time or other speak to men where was the use of her not learning to do it properly lord ma'am continued mrs smith addressing herself to miss ormond lord ma'am though it is a sin to be remembering so much of the particularities of the dead i must say there never was an old lady who had more scrupulosities than the deceased i verily thought one day she would have gone into fits about a picture of a man that rachel lit upon by accident as if a picture had any sense to hurt a body now if it had been one of your naked pictures there might have been some delicacy in her dislike to it but it was no such thing but a very proper picture a picture ma'am of a young sea officer in his full uniform quite proper ma'am it was his mother that left it with me and i had it always in my own room and the girl saw it and was mightily taken with it being the first thing of the kind she had ever lit upon and the old lady comes in and took on till i verily thought she was crazed lord i really could not but laugh but i checked myself when the poor old soul's eyes filled with tears which made me know she was thinking of a daughter that was dead when i thought on her cause of a particularity about rachel i could not laugh any more at her strangeness i promised the good old lady that day in case of her death to take care of her granddaughter and i thought in my own mind that in time to come if one of my boys should take a fancy to her i should make no objections because she was always a good modest behaved girl and i'm sure would make a good wife though too delicate for hard country work but as it pleases god to send you madam and the good gentleman to take the care of her off my hands i am content it should be so and i will sell everything here for her honestly and bring it to you madam for poor rachel there was nothing that rachel was anxious to carry away with her but a little bullfinch of which she was very fond one and but one circumstance about rachel stopped the current of clarence hervey's imagination and this consequently was excessively disagreeable to him her name the name of rachel he could not endure and he thought it so unsuited to her that he could scarcely believe it belonged to her he consequently resolved to change it as soon as possible the first time that he beheld her he was struck with the idea that she resembled the description of virginia in m de st pierre's celebrated romance and by this name he always called her from the hour that she quitted her cottage End of part one of chapter twenty six